Our Father in Heaven, we do thank you, as Trev said, that uh, Jesus has clean hands um, and a pure heart, and he is the one who comes into your presence before us. And uh, uh, we ask, Jesus, that you would be our teacher now, that you would send your Spirit, as we just sang, Come, Holy Spirit, come. Um, to draw near to us, teach us, comfort us, apply the gospel to us. And uh, Lord, you know that uh, my sins are many as I come here to communicate your word, your perfect, imperfect, your perfect, infallible word you now bring to your people through an imperfect, infallible teacher. And so we need your grace, we need uh, your spirit. And so uh, we ask that you would join us now and enlighten our hearts to understand your word. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So the text we're looking at today is uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're starting in verse 13. So let's read together. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord, and it's for our good. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. So I mentioned before that uh, when I was in seminary in St. Louis, there was a course from a, a pastor who was a pastor of a big, giant church down in Birmingham, Alabama, and he had this course on leadership. And uh, in one, uh, it was kind of a formative class for me, and uh, one part of the class was, uh, he was talking about evangelism. And He's, this is the kind of guy, you know, he has 7,000 people, person church, he kind of sits down on a bus next to someone, and by the end of the bus ride, they're a Christian, and he's just a uh, very gifted evangelist, persuasive, uh, very powerful communicator, um, but uh, one of the things that he said that, you know, you know, he's probably had hundreds of people who have become Christians in his ministry, throughout the course of his ministry, one of the things that he said is that every single person that he shared the gospel with his becoming a Christian, it was never just from that one conversation. There was always someone in their life, a Christian, who was a, a burning and shining light, you know, whose life was a testimony of the truth of the gospel, whose you know, life, they were this authenticity and honesty, a kindness and openness. And yet they had convictions and they had purpose in their life and yet they were still gentle and they were patient. And this combination of life was so compelling that that's what, that's, match the message. So it wasn't just the testimony of the Bible. The Bible said Jesus is God, but it was also the testimony of the Holy Spirit working in someone's life. It was a combination of those two things. And so actually, you know, we were, uh, and I was just talking about Monflesh, this men's discipleship thing. And the first one that we had just two weeks ago, uh, we were having a discussion about Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 is a psalm about the right, you know, a wise man, a godly man. It's describing what a godly man is like. And 
the, the image that he uses, the, uh, a righteous man is uh, like a tree planted by streams of water. And, you know, he bears his fruit in season, and his leaves do not wither, and he prospers in all that he does. And uh, we were kind of having a discussion of why is a tree a good image for, uh, you know, a godly life, a wise life, a biblical life. And, you know, there were a lot of interesting things that came out. But one thing that I really never thought of is we were talking about this image of bearing fruit. And how, you know, bearing fruit is kind of, a godly life gives blessing to people. You know, it has this sweetness and uh, deliciousness that it passes out to people. It's kind of like a tree does. And someone said, but you know, a tree also carries a seed. Or, I'm sorry, a fruit also carries a seed. And so, uh, this seed is what, how the tree passes along the seed and, and the, uh, you know, the fruit provides fertilizer and, uh, and protection and, and animals eat the fruit so that it carries the seed. And so, what basically what this, this pastor was saying is that the seed of the gospel needs this fruit, this sweetness, this tenderness around it. It needs to be encased in a life that makes makes the seed pass along and grow and bear and plant in someone. And the, the word that the Bible uses to describe that kind of life is holiness. That beautiful sweetness of life is called holiness. And I've, I've actually printed in your bulletin on page three uh, a little, a good little quote. C.S. Lewis, in a letter, he, he had this correspondence with an, a, a woman in, in the States. He was in England. And uh, they. Uh, this is a little passage from one of his letters to her where he says, um, I'm so glad you gave me the account of the lovely priest. How little people know who think that holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, and perhaps like you, I've met it only once, it is irresistible. If even 10% of the world's population had it, would not the whole world be converted and happy before the year's end? Holiness, that quality of life, is irresistible. It's delicious. It's, uh, and um, and you know, I'm going to talk a little more about uh, holiness as the sermon goes on, but this text that we're looking at is basically the thesis statement for this letter. So uh, Paul, or, sorry, Peter has been saying so far, this is who you are, this is what Jesus has done, this is what God's doing for you. And finally he's going to say, this is my charge to you. This is what I'm calling you to in this letter. And you can see it uh, in verse 13. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's kind of his uh, nutshell for the whole letter. God is holy, so you be holy. Now, um, the first thing that I want to say is that that kind of irresistible kind of life is not natural for you, for me. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as that, you know, that goodness and quality of life, kindness and patience and tenderness and conviction, that that just flows out of us naturally, and the Bible says it doesn't. It, that will not just naturally flow out of us. And... Uh, and even, that's even on our best day. And then you take what the people, the people that P- Peter is writing to, who uh, they have a corrupt, corrupt government, they have abusive bosses, they have husbands who don't obey the word of God, are very difficult to, li- to live with, they have friends who are abandoning them because they're Christians. Try in the midst of all that to be tender, <laughs> irresistibly sweet uh, holiness. Try to live that kind of life. It's, it won't happen. It won't just naturally come out of you. And yet that's our calling. That's why God saved us, is to be burning and shining lights in His world. That's what He saved us to. 
And so how do we bring those two things together? So that's kind of what we're going to unpack, and I had it kind of under the heading of two points. So first of all, we need to understand that our hearts are enslaved to unbelief. Okay, this is, I'm going to spend a good amount of time on that. Our hearts are enslaved to unbelief. And uh, once we get that, we'll see that it's God that must make us holy. That's the second point. God must make us holy. So first, our hearts are enslaved to unbelief. And second, it's God who must make us holy. Um, so first, our hearts were enslaved. Our hearts were enslaved to unbelief or to sin. Now, in John uh, chapter 8, Jesus is having this uh, discussion with a group of Jews who converted their believers. And he says to them, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if you abide in my word, then you'll be my disciples. And uh, my word, uh, my, what does he say? Sorry. Uh, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Kind of famous passage. The truth will set you free. And, the, uh, and these Jews say, you know, we're the children of Abraham. Kind of ironically, we're the children of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. Which the Jews were enslaved to the Egyptians. Uh, the Assyrians uh, took the northern kingdom in, in the 8th century BC. The Babylonians took them into exile. And they were enslaved to the Persians. Now they were living under the oppression of the Romans. And they say, we've never been enslaved to anyone. So Jesus said, okay. But Jesus answers them by saying, uh, if anyone commits sin, he is a slave to sin. And so uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't interact in the way that they're thinking. And he says that actually, uh, you got something oppressive in your life, something that is holding you down, that is a way bigger problem than the Romans. It's far more pervasive, far more oppressive, and it is your sin. And uh, that's why I say that uh, holiness is not just naturally flow out of us, because Jesus says we're actually enslaved to sin. There's this attitude of our heart. There's this discontentment, a kind of grumbling towards God that causes in us uh, um, bitterness towards people. It's what causes us to compare ourselves to one another. It causes us to envy one another, uh, um, to rob from people, to put up walls around us, um, to not engage in relationships. And Jesus says that uh, this attitude of the heart is something that we, uh, we cannot say no to. That sin, this attitude, is something that we we do its bidding. That's why uh, in Genesis four, you know, uh, the story of Cain and Abel, and uh, Cain is growing bitter towards his brother Abel, and God says to him, uh, Cain, uh, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. What he's saying is, sin wants to master you. It wants to be your master. And uh, and what the gospel says is that uh, Jesus has actually liberated us, freed us, somehow, through the cross, from sin. Look look there, picking up in the middle of verse 17, look at what Peter says. Conduct, in the middle of verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. What he's saying there at the beginning of verse 18 about knowing that you were ransomed, that word for ransom is basically the Greco-Roman word for if there was a slave and someone was buying someone out of slavery so that they could come into their house, that's the word that was used. It's God has bought you out of slavery. You're no longer a slave anymore. And, uh, and so Peter says that the way to holiness, the way to being a burning and shining light, is, uh, is to know 
that you were ransomed. You need to know that. That's how you're going to live. That's is knowing that you're ransomed. And actually, that's not as easy as you might think. There, uh, when I was in St. Louis, I went to this luncheon uh, from an organization called the International Justice Mission. Some of you may have heard of it's an international agency that is uh, working against uh, uh, slave trafficking, sex slave trafficking in particular. I, I don't know. You might not know this, but. Uh, uh, the, slave industry in the world is a $12 billion industry. And that right now, just right now, there are more slaves in the world than uh, in the whole transatlantic slave trade in the you know, 19th century from, from Africa to the south. And, uh, there, there are more slaves now than there were in all those years combined. Slavery is a huge thing. And, uh, and so in particular, uh, this, what, at this luncheon, there was actually one of the professors from our seminary was sharing about how he went on a raid with uh, the IJM, International Justice Mission, uh, to rescue some girls who were uh, sex slaves in a brothel. And so he tells a story about how uh, he and this other guy that is American, they walk into this brothel kind of posing as patrons or customers or whatever. And so they go up into this room and there are these 12-year-old girls in, uh, waiting for them, just trembling, fearful. And they try. They can't speak English, so they're trying to tell them, like, no, we're, we don't help you, we don't, we're not here for that. And, uh, and so they're playing patty cake with them and stuff like that, trying to communicate that, because uh, they're waiting, because uh, the brothel is going to get raided, and they're going to be rescued out of slavery. And so it's this pretty intense uh, event for this seminary theology professor to be in. And, but the sad thing is that uh, IJM does all kinds of raids like this, but a lot of the kids that'll come out of slavery. They come out, and as soon as they have the opportunity, you know what they do? They go right back to the brothel. That's all they know. Their whole identity is dehumanizing as that was. They have, that's been their whole life. This is all I know is slavery. And so uh, this sense of going, uh, retreating back to it, that's what slavery does. Is it, it, it defines you as a slave. And it, it strips it strips your ability to uh, to make decisions on it. And uh, and the fact is that um, that's the reason that Peter says that we need to know that we were ransomed. We need to continually remind ourselves that we were ransomed out of slavery. That we uh, you know we um, we've spent our whole life uh, telling ourselves. You know, basically, God is not uh, God is not going to take care of me. I need to take care of myself. God is not uh, God is. I can't depend on God for relationships, for hope, uh, for jobs, for joy. I need to go and get it myself. Uh, for uh, value, I need to I need to make sure I'm better than other people. Uh, and basically, one of the things the Bible says is that all of sin, all of the fallenness in the world, is simply a result of us not believing in God. It's an unbelieving heart. And we're enslaved to it. That's what we've been doing our whole life. And we're used to that. And Peter is saying, um, uh, as a good pastor, Peter is a good pastor. He says, that's going to be your attitude is to walk right back to it. That, that's, that's, that's who you are. That's the, that's the nature of your heart is to go right back to it. And that we're actually not that different than these children in Thailand or you know, wherever this brothel is. Walking right back. This is my identity. This is how I live my life. I don't live my life trusting in God. I live live my life depending on myself. And uh, that's why he says here in verse eighteen, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, you don't. We don't have to live that way anymore. 
And in fact, this is what he says, you know, this is beautiful. In verse 21, this is what, this is what Peter says the gospel has done for us. You who through him, that's through Jesus, are now believers in God. That's who you are. You have been ransomed out of sin. You're not slaves to sin anymore, but uh, you're believers in God. That's your new identity. And, and to, and to tell, we need to tell ourselves that so we're not continually walking back to the brothel. Now, uh, I want to take a little time to answer the question, why does unbelief, not trusting God, that fundamental sin of our hearts, why is that enslaving? Why does it have that um, characteristic? Why do, we continue, why do we have to do that? Why is it not natural for us, for holiness to flow out of us? Well, I think the clue to that comes in verse 14. Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Um, now, when we think of that word passions, we generally think of pleasures, right? That's kind of what people think. When you become a Christian, you you, you got to give up some of the pleasurable things. It's kind of a, a you know, trade-off. You know, you get eternal life, but you don't get the pleasures, and it's kind of like, wait, which one do I want more? And uh, But actually, you know, the, the Bible says that pleasures are good. They're, you know, sex is good, food is good, uh, Music is good. Swimming in the lake is good. Hiking is good. Uh, these are good. Ple- these are good. These are charged with God's goodness. These pleasures. And uh, but this word that Peter uses here for passions is the word epithemia. So epi means over. Thymia means passions. They're over passions. They're, what, what they are is taking good things and asking too much from them. Asking uh, good things to be God for us, to be to be to us what only God can give, and uh, and that's the uh, sorry. Let me uh, so that you know we we ask of a relationship. We we expect a lot from a relationship or to fall in love. And we say you know a relationship is a good thing, but we could say is it everything? My whole identity, but at last, the thing that I'm striving for is that I'm not even alive if I don't have that, or that job, you know, that career, that, that place in life that I need to be to, and, the, and only if I have that then I can say, at last I've achieved it. And what we're asking for is a good thing to be for us what God can only be. So let me give you an example of this. There's a, there's a song, an old Leonard Cohen song uh, called Hallelujah, which has been redone by a number of people over the past few decades. Jeff Buckley did one, and Rufus Wainwright did one more recently. And uh, this is a song, uh, you know, I've been kind of kind of studying this song. It's really, it was, I was trying to figure out what it's about. Actually, Trev kind of opened my eyes to it. I think it's pertinent to what we're talking about. Um, the song is essentially a reflection on King David's uh, affair with Bathsheba. And, um, but even more specifically, it's, it's about um, what happens when you make romantic love or sexual love your ultimate, what, what your whole life is about, what happens when you do that. And uh, let me just read to you a few lines from it. It begins like this. I've heard there was a secret chord that David played, and it pleased the Lord, but you don't really care for music, do you? It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, and the major lift, the baffled king composing hallelujah. And this is where it gets interesting in the second line. Uh, and it's, uh, forgive me if this is, it's not too graphic, but uh, uh, your faith was strong, but you needed proof. Now, when he's talking about your faith, I think he's talking about putting faith in the God of love. God is everything. God can provide for me 
meaning and, and who I am in life. It got, uh, sexual love can be for me what only God could be. So your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. Her beauty and the moonlight overthrew you. That's epithemia you, over-desired. It, was, it, was, it got so big. She tied you to the kitchen chair. She broke your throne, and she cut your hair. And from your lips, she drew the hallelujah. See what he's saying? That devotion, that adoration, the hallelujah that only should be to God, the ultimacy that only be to God was given to romantic love. And uh, given that level of ultimacy, romantic love can make me whole, can make me complete, can make it, can it last. And, and really the song is about how it fails him. It, it, it couldn't do for him what do for him what he was asking for. It says in the next verse, "Love is not a victory march; it's a cold, and it's a broken hallelujah." Now, what's really interesting is how this song ends. Is he's has this meditation on love can't be for me what I what I dreamed it would be. It can't be for me. It can't be God for me. And then this is what he says. And even though it all went wrong. I'll stand before the Lord of Song. Lord of Song is sex God. God is sex. I will stand before the, the Lord of Song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah. He spends a whole song saying, love, love can't be what I, what I hoped it would be. It can't be God to me. And then he says, but I'm going to stand before it and still worship it. He's no different than the girls in the brothel. He's going back to this thing that will... It's dehumanizing and failing him and beating him up that can't be godly and continually going to. And the question that we have to ask is, what are the things that are drawing from our lips? Hallelujah. What are the things that are saying that, that seem so ultimate that if it lasts, I have that. If it lasts, then my life will be full. It will be complete. And the question is, do you know that they will fail you? They cannot be for you what God is meant to be. And, uh, you know, what is that? Is it a, a person, a, a job, a house, shopping, gossip, you know, people's approval? What is it? What are those things that, that you're so hungry for that, that, it, it, uh, that you keep going back to? And what happens is, is when you find out that these gods are failing you, your heart grows bitter. You get self-defensive. You've got to fight for your own. And you're not opening your, your life to other people's relationships, to, to other people. You can't. You're too defensive. But uh, when I hope is in God, who is all these things, he can't, he was meant to be our God. He was meant to have our hallelujahs. What grows in us is holy. And so uh, our first point here is that we were enslaved to unbelief. We were. We're not anymore. We've been liberated. And, and, what, and what, this is an amazing verse. He says, but now you who through Jesus are now believers in God. That's who you are. It's a new identity. You don't, you're, not, you're not idol worshipers. You're a worshiper of the true God. And so because of that, God is making us holy. So that's our second point. God is making us holy. Now, um, one of the ways to kind of describe this uh, emotional... Uh, maybe psychological, spiritual kind of slavery. You know, usually when we think in terms of, uh, uh, you know, an internal kind of enslavement, one of the words that we use is addiction, right? That uh, we're addicted, 
this internal going back. Uh, you know, addictions are enslaving. Addictions make promises that, uh, that this thing will make me happy, will make me satisfied, will complete me, and addictions fail you. But one other thing about addictions that happens is that uh, whatever the addiction is, the thing gives you a, a, a smaller and smaller return every time you go back to it, right? So that whether it's alcohol or sex or food or uh, shopping, whatever it is, uh, the more you go to it, the, le- the more of it you need to be satisfied, right? The more erotic sex, the, uh, the more cans of beer, um, you know, the more dresses, I don't know, shopping stuff. <laughs> Whatever it is you want, more shoes, I guess. That's kind of, um, and uh, it, it has this tolerance effect. You become numb to the pleasure of it. So it makes you able to enjoy things less. That's what it does. And actually, that's, uh, um, that's, that's true for idolatry. When we invest so much in things, that, uh, we enjoy them less. But what's interesting is that when we think about holiness, generally when think of, people say, oh, the Bible says that we should be holy, we think of a holy life means, uh, I mean, this may be the caricature, but you know, you're a monk in a beige robe eating rice and, uh, rice and beans in a stone you know, sleeping on the stones and drinking warm water. You know, it's all pleasure is erased. That's that's a holy man. Or at least we think that becoming a Christian, being a holy Christian, means you're forsaking all the pleasures of the world. And uh, and we think of kind of an irreligious life is uh, the fullness of pleasure. You you're enjoying all the abundance of the world. But the truth is, it's the opposite. What happens is that uh, in an irreligious life. Is seeking is invest everything in the pleasures of the world, and as time goes by, those pleasures get less and less pleasurable, and you find that they fail you. They're not as good as you thought they were. You know, uh, when you get a, a career, a job, and at the beginning you, you're so alive, and you say, "I'm a young man, I'm I'm being successful," and thirty years down the road. You know, I mean, give me something new. It's it's worn off, or or I'm going to be a snowman. I was talking to someone who's I'm I, into snowboarding. I had season passes. I went up every day after school. I'm doing three sixties over the road and stuff like that. It's like I'm bored of it. It's over. There's this uh, the returns are decreasing, but actually, what happens is the opposite for the holy life. A holy life says God is my supreme joy. He's my supreme delight. And what happens is there's an increase in the delight that we have because what, what happens is all the pleasures in the world we're not expecting them to be God to us they point us to God and so uh, what happens is that as we enjoy them as we enjoy children as we enjoy sex as we uh, enjoy relationships we begin to search more and more for God in them the holiness of God is revealed in them and uh, let me just tell you uh, what I mean in that um, look, at, look again at verse 15 Peter says here, um, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now one of the key kind of Old Testament passages on the holiness of God and what it means comes from Isaiah 6, where Isaiah has this vision of God and he's seated on his throne and uh, and you know his robe and the temple is filled with the earth. So I, I should know it. The earth is filled with his glory. And uh, well, that's what the angels say. So uh, so there's this vision of God and all his glory, and the angels are around him and they're saying, "Holy, holy, holy." That's the song that we sang first. Holy, holy, holy. That's where it comes from. Isaiah six. Holy, holy, holy. The Lord God of hosts. The whole earth 
is full of his glory. Now, as I was kind of meditating on the whole earth is full of his glory, I was just walking in the inner urban trail down uh, kind of by Wacom Falls. And just there's a stream there, and there's just this bursting of plants and vegetation, and there's birds chirping and flying everywhere, and you just get this sense of there's life and vitality and good things just bursting out of the earth. They're just everywhere. There's, gosh, I should sit and look at this flower. All of this is charged with the glory of God. And, and, and that's what it is, is that they're all pointing to Him. And the angels say that the response to that is that God is holy. When we see all the glory of the earth, we're supposed to say, God is holy. Holy, holy, holy. And um, and so what holiness does is it makes us see that every pleasure that we have is a gift from God. It's something that is showing us, this is how good God is. This is charged with God's goodness. And you know what? What that does is it opens your eyes to new pleasures that you never, things that you didn't even enjoy. Small things that... You know, the pleasure seeker says, oh, the small pleasures are not big enough. Give me something richer. Give me something more exotic. But the holy person says, look at this little, you know, flower. Look at this, this little, this food. God made this. It's amazing. It's telling me about God. But one of the things that's interesting is it doesn't just give us a pleasure about things in the world. But when we see, have this idea, holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with God's glory, we begin to see people differently. That when, that when God is your supreme pleasure, people that were totally invisible to you before, that you thought they were totally irrelevant, all of a sudden they become a place for you to behold the holiness of God, the glory of God. And you say, this is a person, this is an image bearer of God. And when we're finding our joy and, and delight and pleasure in God alone, we're looking for Him everywhere. And all of a sudden we begin having relationships with people we never had relationships with before. And that's what the pastor's talking about, right? At the beginning, that burning and shining light, that is irresistible kind of kindness and, and gentleness towards people and openness and, uh, and conviction. That's what it is. And it's very interesting. What Peter is quoting here where he says, it, as it is written, look again there, verse, 15, uh, verse 16. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That comes from Leviticus 19. Now, you might not know it, but Leviticus 19 is a passage that you know quite well. Um, uh, in that passage, uh, Moses, who's writing, describes what holiness is like. And there's all these beautiful things about, you know, if you're a farmer, leave all kinds of fruit and, and, and vegetables all in your field so that the poor can come and eat and, and collect from your field, just free of charge. Just let them come and do that. That's holiness. Or, uh, you know, make sure that the disabled are not taken advantage of, but actually they can get around. It says, you know, don't put a stumbling block. So, I mean, holiness is like, you know, ramps for people in wheelchairs. You know, I mean, that's caring for people that, that the culture is, is, that are invisible to the culture, they're all, all of a sudden visible to us. They're, they're God's image bearers. You know, uh, don't speak poorly about people. Don't slander people. If you have a grudge against someone, this is all Leviticus 19, if you have a grudge against someone, you need to look in your heart and dig into your heart and find out what it is, what's going on, reason with them, go and talk to them, work it out so that the, the, the grudge is dispelled. And then the most famous, at the end of that whole passage, the most famous part of Leviticus 19, the quote from our Lord Jesus, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summary of holiness. That's what Jesus is quoting. When Jesus quotes Leviticus 19, he has this whole thing in mind, and when Peter quotes Leviticus 19, he wants his readers to be thinking of the whole chapter. This is the picture. This is who God is. And, uh, you know, the, um, 
And if the Spirit is going to work among us as a church in Bellingham, that's the calling for us is holiness. And the way to holiness is by letting, letting, turning away from our idols and realizing that we're, we're not enslaved to them anymore. Our, pure, our deepest joy is in God alone. And when we do that, we have a delight in all these other things. You know how that is. People that you feel loved by, they're not cold, like, I have no pleasures. They, they love things. They have all kinds of things they can talk to you about because, they, you know, there's so many things they like because they're, they're amazed. They see God in everything. And they see God in you. They see the image of God in you. And that's compelling. And that's what God's calling us to. Let's pray together. My Father in heaven, we thank you that indeed you are holy. We long to be like you. Would we see uh, the whole world is full of your glory and would we sing holy, holy, holy to you. Make us like you and Lord, help us to know that we have been redeemed. We have been ransomed. And uh, draw us to yourself. uh, Enlarge our hearts to trust you more and to delight in you more and to see your goodness and see your faithfulness to your promises. We thank you for your word in Christ's name. Amen.